what's probably responsible for the majority of the regulation of hate speech in the world are really the content moderation policies of of social media companies. The the tools that are available to these companies are incredibly sophisticated and they've just gotten better over time. Hello and welcome back to Hate Speech Around the World, where we explore the many faces of hate speech and discuss what we can do to counteract harmful speech in an increasingly globalized world. My name is Sandhya Fuchs and I am a social anthropologist who studies hate crimes in India. Today, in episode three, we meet Caitlin Carlson, who will tell us about surprising advances in the AI regulation of online hate speech and discuss the possibilities and limits of combating hateful content on social media. So welcome, Caitlin. Thank you. Happy to be here. So to start with, could you introduce yourself to our listeners? So I am uh, an associate professor and the chair of the department here at Seattle University in Communication in Media. Um, My disciplinary background is actually in media studies. So I have a PhD in media studies, and I am interested in looking at questions around media law and policy from a social justice lens, as well as a feminist perspective. And most of my work has focused up to date on, on hate speech. I think just to sum it up really briefly, I am interested in looking at the ways that freedom of expression and media work to either uphold systems of oppression, you know, racism, misogyny, patriarchy, but also thinking about how freedom of expression can work to dismantle those. And in terms of what I'm working on now, I'm actually just finishing up a textbook on the law of journalism and mass communication with Aaron Coyle, who's at Temple University, and Tori Ekstrand, who's at UNC. And then I just started a new project, actually working with a student here. We're doing an analysis of fighting words cases, looking at when the fighting words are directed at women, what is the legal response? And so we're going through encoding whether courts are more likely to see words directed at women as fighting words, because one of the things that they look at in that analysis is whether the person is likely to respond violently. And so since women are conditioned to to be less likely to, to engage in violence, that was something we wanted to analyze to see are we expecting women to bear the brunt of greater verbal abuse based on the way the law is set up? So that's what I'm I'm working on now, but I've written a book about hate speech and most of my work to date has been about hate speech. And so I'm really happy to be part of this project and here talking with you today. Well, great. So there's, there's a lot of information in this. When you say media, what are you talking about? Are you talking just about social media? Are you talking about all forms of communication? No, so I'm generally talking about mass media. So mass communication is really a separate field from communication studies. And so we are really interested in all forms of media, communication technology that allow people to reach a large audience at once. And so really the first form of mass media was newspapers followed quickly by radio, then television, and now the internet. And so my work does focus largely on social media, but disciplinarily, you know, folks in mass communication are interested in all forms of media. 
And the other thing in your initial bit that uh, might be a little bit unfamiliar to some of our listeners, when you say fighting words, what do you mean by that? Well, and I think this speaks to how hate speech is treated very differently in the United States than in most other, particularly Western democracies, but in many countries around the world. So in the United States, hate speech is protected under the First Amendment, meaning it is legal to use hate speech in the United States, whereas in many other countries, it is it is illegal to incite hatred. And so unless hate speech falls into one of these unprotected categories that the Supreme Court of the United States has carved out, it is it is protected. And so sometimes, but not always, hate speech can fall into uh, fighting words, which is a category of personally abusive epithets or insults that when uttered uh, provoke an immediate violent response, which you can see how certain racial slurs might fall into that. For example, threats are unprotected in the United States. So if I threaten bodily harm or death to an individual, not a group, that could potentially be, be punished. Um, and then incitement. Uh, again, in most countries, what is illegal is incitement to hatred. So trying to get a group of people to dislike an individual or group based on their fixed identity characteristics. What we think of as incitement here is really incitement to illegal activity. So for example, incitement to violence. And one of the things that's interesting about that doctrine is that it really has to be immediate. And so even when we're thinking about a lot of content in online spaces, it is still protected under the First Amendment because it doesn't incite an immediate violent reaction, which is what that doctrine is really focused on. So I guess the last thing would be harassment. Um, again, that's seen oftentimes more as a behavior because of its repeated nature uh, rather than the, the words that are used. But again, in the United States, it's considered unconstitutional to have laws that discriminate based on viewpoints. So saying this idea or this set of views is okay, but this one isn't. Any law that tries to do that is often considered unconstitutional. And so when I say I'm looking at fighting words, it may include hate speech, it may not, but that's the area of law or one of the area of law that certain hate speech can fall into. That's really interesting. So let's maybe go to the, the book that you've written, which is quite literally entitled Hate Speed. Yeah. Can you give us a little bit of background on the scope of that book, but also some of the concepts, the questions that you've explored in relation to hate speech and also the regional focus? Are you looking at the US? Are you looking globally? Great. So the book is actually uh, part of MIT Press's Essential Knowledge series. And so these are books that are basically designed to be primers or introductions, not for academics, but for um, regular people who are interested in this subject. And the goal is not necessarily to make an argument or take a strong position, but really to give people the information that they need to form their own opinion about these issues. And so there's really a prescribed format that the book needed to follow. It essentially provides an introduction and a little bit of the history of hate speech and how it has often been linked to bias-motivated violence and genocide. So we situate that globally in terms of things that have happened from the Holocaust to Rwanda, some of these well-known issues, as well as uh, more recently in Myanmar with the Rohingya Muslims. And so you know, kind of contextualized and define hate speech. Again, my audience oftentimes is primarily American and thinking about this from an American perspective, because 
of the First Amendment, our approach is so unique and oftentimes can be problematic compared with the rest of the world. I do try to use that lens, but but really explain what's happening in other parts of the globe. So the second chapter of the book really does go through and look at several different countries to contextualize the U.S. approach. And then I focus on some of the major issues around hate speech, specifically hate speech on college campuses, uh, because these are public spaces. We can have groups of people come in, either invited or not, and engage in this hateful rhetoric, and it's protected. And so students are asked to wrestle with that. So I look at that issue as well as the the question around content moderation of hate speech. And as you said, the largest social media companies are based in the United States. And so you can see in their content moderation practices, they've taken the U.S. jurisprudence around this. They often talk about kind of a commitment to free expression and balancing that. But as private virtual spaces, they can go much further to regulate hate speech, but oftentimes choose not to because it can be very profitable. And so that's kind of of the issue that I look at there. And then, you know, again, I obviously have my own strong feelings about what a solution might look like in the United States. And so I offer that at the end. I am somebody who thinks that we have some existing civil laws that could be used if if expanded or changed to, to combat hate speech. I also think there's opportunity, again, to expand or change some of our existing doctrines around the things I mentioned earlier, like threats or incitement to better capture kind of the most vitriolic or problematic of of hate speech. So I offer that at the end. You know, the book is really, if I sat down next to you at a bar and you asked me, what do I need to know about hate speech? The book is really designed to answer that question for people and give them the the knowledge they need to to form their own opinion about what, as you know, is a very complicated and, and nuanced issue. Well, that's very nice for our audience because, you know, this is what this podcast is intended to be. Not at the bar, unfortunately, but, you know, over the <laughs> Coffee radio. shop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Coffee shop. So actually, let's go back to the basics of this podcast, which is this idea of hate speech around the world. And you're saying you have a very U.S. specific lens. So in this book where you're looking at global cases, but you're also specifically looking at the U.S., how would you define hate speech and how would you define hate speech in the United States? Yeah. So there are all these laws in different countries, but I do think they have certain elements that are central. And the elements that I see in many of these definitions are really about expression that seeks to malign or attack people based on fixed identity characteristics. So when I say fixed, I mean things about yourself you can't change. What I'm talking about are, are primarily either the things that we're born with or the things that really make us who we are, that are fixed, right? So not an opinion, a political opinion, something like that, but more your um, gender identity, your sexual orientation, your race, your ethnicity, yes, your religion, your nationality, your immigration status, right? These are all things that are pretty well fixed. There's been some interesting research in terms of meta-analyses looking at some of the existing definitions of hate speech. The Harvard Berkman Klein Center looked at the definitions across governments, United Nations, and other kind of international bodies, and then social media, and found that things like having an expression of hatred toward an individual or group that causes harm, that incites bad actions, that is public, 
that has really no redeeming purpose. There are things about these definitions that are true kind of across the board. And so for me, again, if somebody were to ask me, I just keep it simple and simply say that it's expression that seeks to malign someone based on their fixed identity characteristics. The other thing that I think is really important when we're talking about hate speech is you know, as a communications and a mass communications scholar, I am someone that believes strongly that words and language are part of creating meaning. And so I think that there is a structural component to hate speech. It does something within our society. So it plays a role in maintaining our existing social hierarchies. We often see historically that hate speech is used by people in power to kind of maintain their their preferred position and to exert dominance over other groups. And by creating this perspective that certain people or groups are more or less human than others, right, we can really establish one, this principle of of othering, of, of us versus them, but we can serve to dehumanize people. And I think that is the part of the equation in which things like discrimination all the way up to bias-motivated violence and genocide are made possible, right? So language creates meaning and the meaning that hate speech is creating is that somehow this individual group is less human than I am and therefore violence or other forms of, again, discrimination, um, inequity, et cetera, are okay when enacted upon this group. And again, from the media perspective, historically, we can see how media has played a role, mass media in particular, in spreading that message. If we look even to the Holocaust, right, the role of of not just newspapers, but any form of mass media, children's books, right? This this message of somehow people who are Jewish are are less than. Uh, In Rwanda, we saw the use of the radio, right? There's really interesting studies out there to show how violence was marked on those villages that received radio content that didn't, right? And you know, here we're looking at how do you convince a group of people to to enact violence against their neighbors, to spread that message, to get that widespread adoption. Uh, media's played a role. You know, today, I think social media, an example I often go to is Myanmar and looking at this campaign against the Rohingya that was largely leveraged on Facebook by military leaders in that country, creating these fake accounts where they were posing as either news organizations or pop stars saying this group is not the same as us. It's okay to burn their houses or rape women or that kind of thing. And for me, I think in talking about what hate speech does, media plays a really important role in the harm that it's able to enact on on a large global scale. Let's actually stick with that point for a moment. There's there's two things I'm curious about with this. The first is the question of like, where does it start, right? Yeah. Where is the beginning of hate speech? But also, are we comfortable maybe taking it to a place where we say hate speech really does need inherently that top-down power imbalance between the groups? Yeah, so I'm I'm so glad that you you touched on this because in the United States in particular, one of the things that has made it nearly impossible to move towards what might be a different form of legal regulation or prohibition is really this question of under the 14th Amendment here, all laws need to apply equally to everyone. When you're talking about something, I love this idea of a democratic deficit that the other scholar uses, you know, as as simply put as a power imbalance, a structural power imbalance of who has political, economic, and social power, it feels for us almost impossible to create a law 
that would not be abused by people in power against those that it's it's designed to protect. So back in the 90s, there was a push to basically extend the fighting words doctrine onto college campuses and create what we called hate speech codes, right? So basically say, you know, in a learning environment like the one that you and I both work in, people need to feel safe and protected and and not attacked based on their their identity. And so we can extend this existing law to say on college campuses, we're not going to use racial, ethnic, those kinds of of slurs and, and other kind of what we would think of as typical hate speech, dehumanizing language, that sort of thing. There was um, essentially a year or two where some of these policies were enacted before they were challenged and overturned by the Supreme Court. And it's really interesting. So I'll just give you an example. At the University of Michigan, in one year, right, where they had these the, these policies, I'll say, on the books of the, let's say, 17, you know, complaints were bought, brought forward, 16 of those complaints were brought forward by white students against Black students, right? And so there really is this concern, and I think in, in some ways, again, it's contextual, and so given the racial dynamics in the United States and the often unwilling, the unwillingness on many people in this country to recognize our history of slavery and genocide against Native Americans. It's really difficult to say, well, how would we enact a law that accounts for the current imbalance between minority or historically marginalized groups and dominant groups like white cis males? And and it really is almost impossible to think about when I'm talking to students or anybody who's kind of new to this stuff, I think one of the things when we think about like what makes things like racism or sexism different than simply prejudice or misogyny and, you know, dislike. And I think for me, and and this I think is something Robin D'Angelo talks about in White Fragility and some other scholars have kind of looked at, it's the it's the political and social and economic systems and institutions, legal systems and institutions included in that, that have been built to uphold the dominance of those groups. Any law we create is often co-opted for the benefit of that group. And so it makes it really difficult. And you'll often hear people here talk about that as the reverse enforcement argument, right? We can't have hate speech laws because they will be co-opted and misused. And I think there's really not enough data, empirical data. I think there's also people who are, you know, nervous, myself included, about, you know, when we don't necessarily have a democracy that functions for us in the United States the way it did maybe even 10, 15 years ago. There's a lack, I think, of trust on the part of the government to enforce these rules in an unbiased way. You know, our Congress is almost entirely white, almost entirely male. And so do we trust that this is the group that would be able to write and enforce legislations? I think that's a really interesting consideration. I don't think it should stop us from exploring solutions, but I think from a legal perspective, I personally am probably more excited about civil laws. So many countries have really great models that we could look to Okay, just for our listeners who are not as familiar with law, what is the difference between civil law and criminal law? So in criminal law, it is the state, whether that's the country or the individual state, that is bringing the charges against the individual. The penalty for violating criminal law can be jail time or a fine. And in the United States, we have a different 
evidentiary standard for criminal than civil law. To be convicted of violating a criminal law, a jury of your peers needs to find that there is beyond a reasonable doubt that you've committed this crime. And so anytime you hear about someone going to jail, then we're talking about criminal law. Civil law is between two private parties or individuals. And so most of media law that you hear or read about is civil law. For example, if you were to say something libelous about me, something that's not true that injures my reputation, I may sue you. I'm bringing charges, not the state. There's no no threat of jail time. I'm suing you for damages. I'm suing you for money, essentially. The only punishment is a fine. We still may have a jury deciding kind of which way it's going to go, but the standard of evidence that they're going to be a task with using is called a preponderance of evidence. Unlike criminal law, where you've got to be like 99.99% sure, with civil law, it's really only a preponderance of evidence. You more likely think that I said this libelous thing than less likely. So maybe a way to think of it is like, I'm 51, 52% sure, not 99.9% sure. And so again, when we're talking about media law, what we're most often talking about is civil law. So with hate speech, it would be desirable or easier to move some of these hate speech matters from criminal into the civil section because the standard of proof isn't so high. That's my personal, I think we'd be much more successful. And there have been efforts to, in the United States, to use existing civil laws to address questions uh, around hate speech. We have a civil statute law in many states that surrounds itself around intentional infliction of emotional distress. Basically, something you expressed was beyond the bounds of, of decency and was it created harm to this person, right? It's potentially really interesting to, to explore. Your other question, where does it start? So I know that there is, and I am not well-versed enough on it to really talk about the psychology of you know this idea that we affirm our membership in certain groups or identity groups by othering or but I don't feel well versed enough to to speak to it but what can, what I can say is I do not believe that people are born this way so I do not believe that you know race uh gender even these are social constructs right sex is biological but the rest of it right it is very socially constructed it is through our interactions with each other through our language that we give these ideas meaning and so I don't believe that obviously that this is something we're born with. I think this is something that we're taught at a very early age. And I think especially for us in a society that I would, when the United States characterizes as very much a, a white supremacist society, right? Where everything, all the, the laws and the systems and the institution are geared to maintain the privilege and power of white people and keep that group dominant over those with historically marginalized identities. I think that we are taught from a very young age to engage in this language, behavior, meaning, assigning that happens to establish those differences of what is my race? What is my gender identity? What's an acceptable gender identity? What's an acceptable sexual orientation? And so it goes back just to kind of bring it full circle, you know, media plays an enormous role in establishing what those ideas are. I am a firm believer that along with things like 
your family or your religious institution or your school. Media is one of those really big five or six things that help shape what we believe. And so part of the solution to breaking down some of these beliefs is to have more diversity and equity throughout all levels of media. So the macro level, which is really ownership and the institutional level, the mezzo level, which is really the decision makers. So whether that's a casting director or somebody who works on a news algorithm at Meta, and then the representation of what we see. So I think one of the pieces of the puzzle of of combating some of these ideas is is media along with, for me personally, you know, public education. And I think those three pillars, you have the legal part, you have the media part, and you have people in their families, their home environments. And if you think about hate speech, those are all bodies and institutions that in their own language, the language that they normalize shape public consciousness. And I think it's very interesting that you were talking about, on the one hand, the role of the media, on the other hand, the co-option of hate speech laws or hate crime laws generally. Because I do think that is definitely a global problem. The problem that hate speech laws are being enacted by institutions that are also shaped by all of the social prejudices that are floating around. But I also agree with you that I don't think that means we should be getting rid of all of these laws. But how do we actually think we can prove things like hate speech? How do we think we can prove things like discrimination? Because I think the evidence methods we have set up don't really work. You know, in India, for example, if you're going back to the media part of it, there is a big conversation right now about like what kinds of videos, what kinds of social media clips, what if this can count as evidence and what cannot count as evidence? So I think there's a lot of questions on this front. Yeah. Well, and I think globally, one of the biggest questions we're wrestling with is who's responsible, right? Is it just the person that posts that content or is it also the social media company that allows it to be amplified? And, you know, as you know, Germany has kind of taken this tact or this approach with NetsDG where they've said, no, we think we should hold the company accountable. And that's really different than, you know, the advice coming out of the UN. That's really different than a lot of what countries do, even in the United States. Like, let's say we were to someday, which I I do not envision in our, our future, given our political climate, but even if we were to enact a hate speech law, it's not like we could hold Meta or Twitter or any of these groups accountable. So I'm curious if that's come up in that conversation in India as they wrestle with what counts, who's responsible. Yeah, nobody knows yet. It's a big question mark. But what's very interesting, and I think this is something that you're now touching on, is there's basically in the hate speech space, a layering of laws or regulations that's happening, right? So you have international human rights laws guidelines, and then you have national laws, and then you have social media companies that have their own regulations. And I was wondering whether you could give us a little bit of a breakdown, maybe with an example from your work, about the different kind of laws that come into place and how they interact and who has the final word in any discussion about is this hate speech or not? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Okay, so the United Nations, it's basically a recommendation, right, to to member states of if here's the approach we'd like you to take. So in the very aftermath of World War II and even up into the 60s, they enacted CPR, ICURD, they they enacted these policies, again, not to, to get into kind of alphabet soup, but basically recommendations to states about you should, as a country, have laws that make incitement to hatred illegal, right? And so 
different countries will take up this charge in in different ways. I mentioned Germany. Germany's probably got some of the most strict hate speech and not just hate speech law. So again, for states or, or countries that do have laws, it can be a real combination of different things, right? So it can be criminal laws, right? So in Germany, there are actual laws on the books that say, you know, incitement to hatred will land you in jail for two years or a fine. They will also have um, what we might think of as defamation laws. These are laws that are really about either injury to reputation, injury to honor, for example. And that's another way that people who are victimized by hate speech can seek restitution from those that are creating or spreading that content. Germany is really interesting. They've recently expanded those laws uh, to include something called hate mongering and to really try and get more specific about what that looks like. So there is an important part of the conversation when we talk about specific laws in different countries, there's what's on the books and there's what's enforced. And oftentimes, even if there is a law against something, there may not be the resources allocated to enforcement. And so who's responsible for monitoring or saying, hey, this is going on. Oftentimes what happens, it's the victims themselves that will say this is what's happening and go to either police or hire an attorney to try and use the laws that are on the books to seek justice. What's probably responsible for the majority of the regulation of hate speech in the world are really the content moderation policies of social media companies. And I think when we talk about social media, it's really important to contextualize meta and everybody else. So Facebook's meta, <laughs> right? It's it's a behemoth. I don't need to tell you this. So if you were to combine monthly users for Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, right, which are all owned by Meta, that number is something along the lines of like 3.4 billion monthly users. And there's overlap between those. But the point is, at the end of the day, a single publicly traded company whose main job is to make money is responsible for deciding how hate speech and other forms of expression are treated you know, globally in the United States, Twitter is very popular. Twitter has 500 million users, not even one single billion, right? So we're talking six, seven times the the number of users. Half the people on earth are using one of these platforms. What Facebook does, what Meta does is what we all do. So the way content moderation works is there's basically three parts. There's the rules that they set, right? The community standards, and those are different from TikTok to Instagram, to Twitter, to YouTube. For example, YouTube will say hate speech is any expression that attacks people based on this list of 12 or 13 fixed identity characteristics, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, age, those kinds of things, race, ethnicity, nationality. They'll decide, hey, here's what those are. Facebook is somewhat interesting. It's evolved a lot over time, but it's really a multi-tiered definition. The definition is actually pretty good, right? That they're taking into account not just racial or ethnic slurs, but they're also taking into account things like dehumanizing language, comparing people to animals of any sort, even using language like, like 
dirty or infected or those kinds of things, right? It's a pretty sophisticated definition, but the, the definition is only one part. There's also the enforcement. Most of the enforcement happens through the algorithm, through the AI that's trained to identify and oftentimes remove or flag this content. I will say that the machine learning, the deep learning, the natural language processing, the the tools that are available to these companies are incredibly sophisticated and they've just gotten better over time. So it's fascinating to me. I did a study back in 2018 where we reported a bunch of hate speech to Facebook and saw what they left up and took down. And it was still pretty clunky, right? They'd leave certain things up and take certain things down that were the exact same things or the AI didn't really understand the context. In the five years since then, it has improved exponentially. The AI can tell, or at least has markers to tell hey, somebody's joking, or hey, this is a term that's been reappropriated. It's used by someone in this group, not to to demean another person, but to recapture that word as a way of pushing back against systems of power. I mean, it's really, really sophisticated. What's interesting about that process is what it can do versus what it's trained to do or what it lets it do. I don't know if you remember, I think it was 2021, Francis Hogan, Uh, was a whistleblower for Facebook. She was on the civic integrity team and she basically came out and said, yes, like the things that scholars and activists are accusing us of are true. We have tweaked the algorithm to unsurprisingly keep you on the platform longer because your eyeballs are what we sell to advertisers. That's been true of commercial media since time immemorial. And so this question of are they amplifying certain forms of speech as a way to keep us on the platform, I think the answer is very unequivocally yes. When their transparency reports, Facebook will say something to the effect of, okay, last quarter, I think the most recent one says something like 11 million pieces of content were actioned. And what Hogan was saying was basically, well, that's maybe three to 5% of what's actually on the site. And so to me, it's very performative. It's very much a public relations move of, hey, look what we're doing. But in reality, in the places that it's difficult to find, particularly like think about like Facebook groups, they kind of let it ride. And, And the last piece of content moderation is what we call community flagging. So this is where the labor is uh, essentially unloaded to us as users to say, hey, if you see something, flag it. When humans are tasked to do this work, it is very low paid. It is uh, very exploitative. They're outsourced from different companies. They're not making the average salary of Facebook employees, which is something like $220,000, right? They're, They're making much smaller amounts of money. But the reality is there's no real incentive without laws or regulations for Facebook or Twitter or any of these other companies to go against their financial best interest. Leaving hate speech on the platform is in their financial best interest. And their job, again, in the United States, at least as publicly traded companies, their job is to make money for shareholders. And so I don't know that without some sort of regulation, we can expect them to act against their own financial best interests for the good of society, democracy, et cetera. That's very sad and also very understandable. It is quite mind-blowing, though. I think a lot of people don't know this. I think a lot of people's idea of what AI can actually capture in terms of hate speech is the clunky part that you were talking about. One of the main critiques that a lot of, for example, anthropologists always have is AI will struggle with context. But what you're telling us that we actually have gotten to a point where technology can really detect and analyze context, but we're just not using that. Yeah, it's it's certainly not perfect. It's not without fault, but it has improved so much in recent years. If Meta really wanted, 
dramatically less hate speech on the platform, it could do that. It chooses not to, is my firm belief. I think that plays into a, a, a different aspect of the whole meta saga as well, which is about the political types of interests that are then being generated through large companies like that. 100%. So one thing, just a basic question that I guess maybe you, you might be able to answer this question is if I'm in the United States and I'm online and I see that on a Facebook platform, there's a lot of hate speech going on and I flag it and nothing happens. If I took it to the police in the US, would they be able to do anything about no. it? What are the jurisdictions at play here, I guess? Yeah. So it's not illegal, right? So it depends. Mm-hmm. I mean, Unless it crosses over into one of those specific areas that I mentioned, which is very unlikely, right? So fighting words is a statute. Many states in the United States have laws that are really more about disturbing the peace, obstruction of justice. That's oftentimes where fighting words come in. It's something oftentimes in person that words are exchanged and there is a perceived potential for a violent ins- response. So it's almost like an insult, a potentially violent response. Oftentimes it's words exchanged with police, right? So fighting words really doesn't, doesn't translate online. Honestly, same thing with our doctrines or our laws around incitement. Incitement to illegal activity has to really have an immediacy component. So this is expression that incites an immediate violent or illegal response. And so with online content, it, we, we don't necessarily acknowledge, Hey, this is happening. You know, obviously it's impossible to talk about incitement to violence in the United States without also recognizing the guns, right? We have more guns Mm. than people. And so there have been efforts by activists to try to link what's happening in these online spaces to saying, you know, these particularly young white men are getting radicalized in places like 4chan or Gab or or Reddit or wherever it is. And they're having access to all this problematic content that includes hate speech. And then they go out and they engage in these violent mass shootings. Can we hold the people providing this content responsible? And the answer under the existing incitement framework is no, because we can't say A led to B necessarily, right? Incitement is immediate. Let's go burn down this house and who's coming with me. And the question that the law under that framework asks is, is there a likelihood that people are going to go? And so unless people have engaged in this kind of behavior before, we assume there's no likelihood. So even if I'm standing in front of a mob of people saying, hey, let's go attack members of this group, the likelihood that that mob is coming with me is something that they're going to take into account. The other piece is threats, which again, is really about threatening an individual, not a group. And so- All of those things apply online. So if I were to threaten you on social media and then go to the police, there might be something that they could potentially look into, right? Same thing with harassment. Many states have online harassment laws. They're more, they seem to be structured to deal better with harassment that happens between people who know one another. So, you know, I don't need to tell you online harassment is a big part of domestic violence. And so When it's a component of that, it may be easier to deal with, particularly because the people may also be in the same jurisdiction. What happens with online harassment where it's like a troll storm or troll army is that you're crossing multiple jurisdictions. And again, it goes back to to resources and training that police departments may not have the, the resources to deal with it. So I didn't mean to initially laugh when you asked that question, but the reality of you going into a police department and saying, 
you know, somebody said something to me online that wasn't a direct threat of, of violence or death, or wasn't, I'm going to engage in this violent act at this particular time on this particular day. I mean, the, the likelihood that they would do anything other than laugh at you is really, really small, which is sad, right? Because there are, I mean, to your point earlier about who's responsible, we have these, these just time after time, these mass shootings and we can trace it right back to these people's online behavior. People are live streaming these. People are on these sites right before they go in and shoot up a school or a church. And there's no accountability for anybody involved, whether that is the the social media piece or even like people that write laws that allow young people to have assault rifles. So it's a it's a real mess over here. I'm not going to lie. It's It's very disheartening for a lot of us that study this. I mean, there is once again also that gap between theory and practice. Theoretically, if all of these things were there, you could do this. But in practice, nobody has the training or the capacity or the jurisdiction to actually do all of that. As soon as it comes to the online space, people are like, ah, but it's crossing a national boundary. Who is actually being targeted to the point where it's almost a completely paralyzed system? Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to me, like when we think about, you know, I step back and I say, okay, we're only 20 years into this thing, right? That, That we haven't figured it out in terms of particularly social media regulation. I think To what extent are laws the solution or policies the solution? To what extent is it media literacy? I think there may be a subset of people that might be generating a lot of this content and going after them, I think, might be successful. But to me, the reality is that spreading these ideas is happening online. And so targeting the laws and regulations to the companies is a big part of the solution. I often will use the analogy of the environment, right? I know in the United States, several decades ago, very few environmental regulations. And so we did have companies dumping toxic chemicals into rivers and that sort of thing. And then we create the EPA and we have reporting requirements and we have government regulators on sites and and we put all this infrastructure in and it's starting to work, right? Like the hole in the ozone is getting smaller. The water is getting cleaner. And so I have hope in the sense that we've dealt with industries that are toxic or polluting. In this case, it's our information environment, but we found solutions. And so the one thing I I don't want is for people whoever and however they are connected to this issue to throw their hands up and say, well, we simply can't figure it out. It's too complicated. I, I just don't believe that. And I think we lack imagination if we think laws and policies are the only ways to solve this, right? It's a combination of education, law, policy. You know, it's it's not one thing, but it's a lot of pieces of, of this puzzle that are going to be required. Is it ever going to go away entirely? I'm not sure. People, my students, one of my students said the other day, they're like, people have been hating on each other forever. And I'm like, you know, you're not wrong. But the thing (laughs) that is different now is the amplification. If you wanted something to reach a large audience in the past, the people who had control of mass media, the newspapers or the radio had to buy into it. What's so wild now is that anybody gets the microphone or anybody gets the opportunity to amplify. It's not going through what we would think of as traditional journalistic ethical standards or review, it's just out there. And so things like deplatforming, things like shadow banning, things like 
any form of, of de-amplification, content moderation, those could make a huge, huge difference. And so I, I still have hope that we'll figure a way out of this to at least address the enormity of what feels like the problem right now. That's actually a really lovely segue into you the final question I have for you, which is, why do you think it's really important? I mean, partially, we've probably already answered this question, but why do you think it's really important at this moment in time to think about hate speech? And what is the thing that you would like listeners whose job isn't to work on this day to day to take away from this segment? Yeah, I think one of the things for me that is shocking, disturbing, whatever you want to call it. You know, I live in one of, if not the richest country in the world. And I strongly believe that the gap between people with money and resources and a certain kind of life and those without it is is continuing to grow in a time when it feels like we should all have access to those resources. We're in a point, I think, in history where we could all be living differently. And what keeps us from being able to have a more equitable life among different groups of people is oftentimes these social component, right? It's not necessarily, is there enough food? Is there enough clean water? It, it, it isn't that anymore. It is really, I don't see you as the same as me. And that is really if you go back historically and look at all major incidents of, of hate speech that has led to bias-motivated violence and genocide, it is this us versus them mentality. At the heart of this question is, do we see each other as human, as equal humans, right? And if, if by eliminating hate speech, we can move the needle towards that understanding or that ideology or that perspective, I think it could really change what life looks like for people all over the world. And I think you know, the last thing I'll say about this is like the challenges that we as a global society are facing are ones that require people to be able to come together. And so it, it just seems so petty to me when we think about like climate change, right? Do, do you like, as the water gets higher, it doesn't matter who looks like what or who's called what, or I'm different than you in this way, the, the rising water doesn't give a shit. And so- I think if we can move towards a place where we respect the humanity and dignity of everyone and use that as a starting point to tackle some of these global issues, I mean, I just think humans would be unstoppable and the life that many of us could live or that I, as a white cisgendered American woman do live, right, that that would be accessible to a lot more people. And so at least for me, the the driving force behind all of this is is equity and justice, and for lack of a better word, spreading the wealth. And I think that we do that through recognizing one another's humanity. And so I hope if people are thinking about this issue for the first time, they can see how just divisive this kind of language and ultimately thinking and behavior that comes from this is and what opportunity it might be to approach it differently, to, to see each other differently. That's a very lovely and hopeful note to end on. If our listeners have questions for you, can they reach out to you? Where can they find you? Please do. So I am on the Seattle University website. If you just go to communication and media, you will see my smiling face as chair of the department. And I am always anxious and excited and interested to talk to people about not only their own personal experience, but what's happening in their 
community, in their country. I just think this is an all hands on deck situation. And I am just happy to be one small part of the puzzle of moving the needle forward and encouraging people to think about this issue. Well, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Take care. And thanks to all of you for listening in today. I do hope you tune in again next week when we turn our focus to South America. We will meet Gabriel Bayari, who will help us understand how hate speech is linked to the rise of right-wing politics in Brazil and what is particular about hate speech in the post-colonial world.